Hey, how are you? Are you awake? Great, Saturday evening, you should be awake by now. Grab your Bibles, we're going to be picking up in Matthew's Gospel, that's been the content for where we're going. I, I, I just was thinking as we were singing all those Christmas carols, four or five weekends of the year we sing those carols. And I'm always reminded every year of the, they are so chock full of theology. Uh, and as we're singing them, I'm like, they're telling the story of Christ and of redemption and of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's woven through those stories. And we get four or five weeks of the year when we sing them and they, they're familiar to us and we can rattle them off. And yet they're different from the songs that we sing the rest of the year, right? So what a joy it is to be able to sing those. Amen. All right. Uh, so Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish theologian and a philosopher, and he wrote a lot of stuff, and one of the things he wrote was a little story that he called The King and the Maiden. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet, this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course. But would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life that she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side, and how could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He didn't want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was the king and that she a humble maiden. And let shared love cross the gulf between them. And then Kierkegaard concludes by saying, because it is only in love that the equal, the unequal rather, can be made equal, and summarizes the king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito. With a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him, it was no mere disguise, but a new identity he took on. He renounced the throne to win her hand. Now, whatever else you make of Kierkegaard's little parable, the metaphor and the uh, similarities to the Christmas story are clear. That Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, renounced his throne to win his bride, the church that he took on a new identity that we might see him as the lover of our souls. And so I have a simple question for you on this fourth weekend of Advent that relates to this theme of his love toward us, and it is this question. Are we a humble people? Are we a humble people? And I ask the question because it is written all over this book, but specifically because it is emblazoned into the story of Jesus' childhood. 
that greatness in God's kingdom begins by stepping down. I want to try to convince you of that one single thought in these next few moments, that greatness in God's kingdom begins by stepping down. And to be frank, this is not a message. In fact, already you may be rolling your eyes internally. It's not a message that sells well in Western culture. It's not a message that sold well in the first century culture. In fact, I think that the call to humility is likely the most or the greatest obstacle to people coming to faith in Christ in our Western world. The call, as Bonhoeffer said, to follow Jesus is a call to come and die, to lay your life down. Humility doesn't make the headlines. Humility doesn't change the world, we are told. And yet so much of Jesus' life turned that upside down. Uh, In his commentary, D.A. Carson says this, that Jesus the Messiah, Matthew is telling us, did not introduce his kingdom with outward show or present himself with the pomp of an earthly monarch. In accord with prophecy, he came as the despised servant of the Lord. When I read that quote this week, it took me immediately in my mind, for whatever reason, to a hymn that we sing quite frequently around here, the hymn, Christ Alone. And I don't know if you've noticed how that hymn is structured, but the first verse is all about the strength and the strong faith that we have in Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. You know, it's amazing when we sing that hymn, the volume level goes up in the audience. But have you ever noticed that verse two turns it on its head? If first one is absolute strength, verse two is an embraced weakness when it says, in Christ alone, who took on flesh. So there you have John 1.14, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Fullness of God in helpless babe. Fullness of God, of course, is Colossians chapter 1. That he is in the very preeminent state of being God. The fullness of God dwelt in him. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. By him, all things hold together, Colossians says. In him, the fullness of God dwells, but in helpless babe. That's Matthew 1 and 2, and of course, Luke 1 and 2. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. And so you ask the question, why would he be scorned? Why would this Jesus be mocked and ridiculed and ignored? What was it about the life of Christ that put off so many powerful people but attracted the weak, brokenhearted? And in part, we have to see that his life, his death, his birth, his ministry simply does not jive with what the world expects of power. Uh, It's clear in the first century context that this Jewish audience was looking for a political leader, for a military leader. They were looking for a person of wealth and power and influence. They were looking for a charismatic personality type who with the force of all the, the universe behind him would set them free. And today the assumption is that if you want to change the world, you start with the powerful. You start with the rich. You start with the movers and shakers of society. That's how you start a world-changing movement, so we're told. And yet the call to humility that is not a culturally relevant call is the call of the Christmas story. And the great danger that we, in this room, the danger we live with, is that we come to this Christmas story and we read it from a position 
the position we live in of peace and prosperity and influence and wealth and power. And we can read it like it's a nice children's story, but not actually embrace the implications in this story. And so I want to press that question a little bit further. I ask you, are we a humble people? But let me press it further. Do we really believe that Jesus' descent into greatness would work today? Do we believe that that strategy, that philosophy of ministry would actually work as we head into 2023? Philippians 2 says that he, Jesus, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That text is called the great emptying, the kenosis that Jesus emptied. He did not grasp or exploit his identity as God. Peter would later write, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So our focus through these last four weekends has been Matthew 1 and 2. And Matthew takes great pains to present the harsh reality of Jesus' childhood. That the foundation for his humble life as an adult was forged in the fires of adversity that he faced as a child. That from the very beginning of his life, Jesus was identified with the outcast, the underdog, the broken, and the despised. That was his crowd, if you will. Let me just remind you of a few things that we have mentioned over the previous weekends. We talked about the scandal of an unwed pregnancy, particularly in that first century honor-shame culture, and how Mary and Joseph would have never really gotten away from that shame. We talked about Jesus being born to a working-class couple. He was not born to the halls of power, but he was born to Bob the Builder. His birth took place in a backwoods little town, not the nation's capital. The God of the universe couldn't even make a booking on Hotels.com. He spent his first few days sleeping in the barn with all the smells that go with it. His cradle was a feeding trough. The first witnesses were shepherds. Now, we, we romanticize shepherds, but in that day, they were the lowest class. They could not even testify in court. They were not trusted. They were assumed to be stupid. They were assumed to be the lowest of the low, the uneducated who were good for nothing else except taking care of the livestock. The first worshipers we talked about last weekend were not the Jewish scribes and teachers of the law, the religious people. It was the Babylonian worship team. Magi from the east, from Persia or from Babylon who came to worship and his parents finally were confirmed as being poor. Mary and Joseph were poor. We see when they get to the temple on the 40th day for Mary's purification and Jesus' dedication as the firstborn and they don't bring the standard offering of a lamb. They bring the substitute that was allowed for people who were in poverty. They brought two pigeons. They were poor. Everything about the arrival of this king is upside down. It is. It's literally upside down. I mean, think about how royalty travels these days. So I'm an American. You know this. Uh, Queen Elizabeth made several visits to the states, and it took a while for the states to warm up because the states have a different opinion of the Commonwealth than Canada does. If you know the history, you'll know why. She was mocked in those early days for her travel. One of the first trips, she brought 4,000 pounds of luggage. 
She had two outfits for every occasion. She also brought along an outfit for mourning just in case someone would die. She brought her own hairdresser because apparently there's nobody in the whole of the U.S. who could set her hair correctly. But what made the press most fun, and they had a lot of fun with it, was when it was revealed that she also brought along white kid leather toilet seat covers. And the royal bum became fodder for reporters' humor. But bring it up to the present day. Just last spring, Charles and Camilla did a three-day whirlwind tour here in Canada. They were on Canadian soil less than three days, 57 hours to be precise, at a cost of $1.4 million. $25,000 per hour. At the same time, Will and Kate were touring in Belize, Bahamas, and Jamaica, and the total cost for that trip isn't yet out, but their private jet, the flights alone, cost $350,000. Or if you want to talk about our own government officials, attending the royal funeral in London wasn't cheap for us taxpayers. The rooms ran from $1,900 to $6,000 per night. The Toronto Sun made this comment that no one would expect the Prime Minister or the Governor General to stay at the Hampton by the airport. But did the hotel stay for the official delegation need to cost $356,000 and change? Dignitaries, you see, travel in style. And Matthew seems to be intent on shining a spotlight on Jesus' outcast status that his entry into the world was not just ordinary, but it was actually stacked up against the harsh realities of the world and its darkness. He didn't use his trump card. He didn't grasp his divinity. He didn't think it was something to be exploited, but he emptied himself. And in our text, Matthew gives us three quick snapshots as we finish out the last part of this chapter. And we're going to see Jesus on the run. We see Jesus in an evil world. And we see Jesus on the wrong side of the tracks. So verses 13 to 15, Jesus on the run. And it goes like this. Now when they had departed, and it's referring to the wise men who had been there to worship, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night. And departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I'll call my son. Matthew points out that Jesus was born into a world of refugees. And in fact, he himself became a refugee. Uh, Ray Bakke was one of my seminary profs and he made the comment that with millions, literally hundreds of millions of displaced people in the last 20 years all around the world, many of them coming from the African continent, that it is significant that Matthew points out that Jesus was a refugee from Africa. Later in life, Jesus would say this, that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man is homeless. And not only was that true of him as an adult, but it is how Jesus' story began in the so-called flight to Egypt. 
that they left at night and the dangers of traveling in the night, the urgency to get out of town. And it's something that we see on the news, it's the stories we hear, but quite honestly, the challenge for most of us is we don't really know how to relate to the story of refugees. We only see it from a distance or we hear the stories of a previous generation. But most of us, quite honestly, don't have a clue of what it would be like to be forced out of home and country. Now, now Canada has welcomed over 400,000 immigrants this year, but most of those immigrants have come to Canada. They are not running away from something. They have intentionally come to. But some have been driven out of their countries. And can you imagine living in a foreign land, a new language, a new culture, and wanting, longing to go home, you are in exile. And then to add insult to injury, it is not just that they were exiled, but that they were exiled to Egypt. It's like a punch in the face. Egypt, that represented all that was painful in Israel's past. Egypt, that represented in their memory 400 years of slavery and oppression and pain. But Egypt as well, if you know the Gospels, also represents God's great salvation and deliverance. That, that God, we are told, sent Joseph ahead of his brothers to prepare the way, the salvation, the preservation of the family. That God raised up a deliverer named Moses, that he would bring his people, that he would call his son, the nation of Israel that is called the son, he would call his son out of Egypt into the promised land. And that even today, out of Egypt, out of exile, out of pain, God is working for the good of his people. And in our small little micro stories, whatever they might be, of exile, of exclusion, of being all alone, that God is still calling people to himself. Jesus was born into a family on the run. But we also see that he was born into a world filled with evil intent, a world where wicked men in power would still kill and destroy. And so it goes on to say, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they're no more. So the Christmas story is just four chapters is what we have recorded. Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. But most of our focus is on three of those chapters. We typically don't spend a lot of time in Matthew 2. In fact, Matthew 2 gets cut to the editing floor in most Christmas Eve services. You never hear a word about the second half of Matthew 2. Our Christmas reflections end with the wise men, right? So talk all you want about the angels and the shepherds and the magi coming, but don't go on to talk about the paranoid king and the massacre of the innocents. In fact, I can almost guarantee uh, we could ask the question, I doubt you have ever received a Christmas card with King Herod on the front, right? (laughs) Nor, of course, have you received a Christmas card depicting the massacre of the innocents. We want to ignore it. The images are part of the story as well. 
And Matthew forces us to look at the harsh realities of the evil world into which Jesus was born. And it makes Jesus approachable to us because his world is no different than our world. He was not somehow kept from the terror of power gone bad. He knows the harsh reality of the streets, we might say. So last weekend, Pastor Ezra reminded us about King Herod and his paranoia and the wrath of this insecure and narcissistic leader, that he was a man who was driven for absolute power and control over everyone in his life and, in fact, over the entire nation. His name in the first century would have sent a chill down the spine of Jewish readers. Uh, To say it was the days of Herod the Great would be like today saying it was the days of Adolf Hitler. These are the days of Pol Pot or Mussolini. These are the days of Joseph Stalin. These are the days of Saddam Hussein. These are the days of Vladimir Putin. The name would trigger immediate memories of dictatorship gone bad. And the truth is, King Herod types have been with us in every generation. They are with us today. On the macro level, on the geopolitical front, if we went around the room, you could play the game, name your favorite dictator. We could talk about Afghanistan. We could talk about Iran. We could talk about North Korea. We could talk about communist China. We could go on and on and on with the list of the dictators in the world's geopolitical world today. And at the micro level, we also know what it is to live with control freaks because we have all been one, right? There is a little King Herod inside every one of us. We want what we want when we want it. And we will tend to step on and step over other people to get what we want. And we're happy to live and let live as long as no one tries to tell us how to live. So when the book of Hebrews says that we have a high priest who can relate, a high priest, we're told, who is familiar with our struggles, it includes the geopolitical struggles that every generation has lived with. Jesus' parents, Jesus' family knew full well what it was like to live in a land under oppression. Jesus grew up in a nation under oppression. And honestly, so... I'll say it once again, in the democratic West, we have no context to truly understand what state-sponsored oppression is actually like. We see it on the nightly news and we try to get inside the stories of the minds of men and women in other parts of the world, but we actually have no real context for it in our day. But the good news to anyone who has ever been oppressed is that Jesus walked this road before us. That Jesus was raised in what we might call today a terrorist state, where you were only free so long as you bent the knee to the dictator in power. Then you're free, but don't disobey. Finally, Peter punches it home with one last detail. That on the death of Herod, they returned to Israel. And if you're reading in the context, it looks like Joseph wanted to settle in Judea that he wanted to go back probably to Bethlehem because that's where his extended family was from. And you can speculate why. They met and were engaged in Nazareth. The baby was born in Bethlehem. Why would he want to settle in Judea? Well, probably because he wanted a fresh start. Probably because he didn't want to go back to Nazareth where those people knew them from their engagement days. And yet God has different plans because it's back to Nazareth they go. Verse 19 to 23. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt 
saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, there are so many angles that we can look at this act of God's providence over Jesus' life. Rather than being raised in the palace in the capital city, the child of royalty, he was raised in the blue-collar home. And he was raised in a despised region of the country, Galilee. Galilee to the north was economically depressed at this point in time. It was populated largely by the working poor in a series of fishing villages. Uh, John 7, we pick up on a little bit of the skepticism about Galilee. There's an argument going on in John 7. won't take the time to go there. But they're talking about the possibility that Jesus might indeed be the Messiah. But then the argument is raised, no, 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 the Messiah comes from royalty. And we read it in Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1 that he was the son of David. King David is Joseph's ancestor. So Jesus is born into the kingly line. He must come from Bethlehem. This guy is from Galilee. And that statement was said with a sneer. It was not a good thing. Surely we're smart enough to know that Galilee is the lowest and the least of Israel's regions. The Messiah could never come from Galilee. But what's interesting is that there's even a deeper layer still. And we were looking at this a few weeks ago in, God, in, the, in the first part of John's gospel. That even within the region, so the county or the state, you might call it, of Galilee, within the Galileans themselves, they had their own prejudices as well. So if you had to live in Galilee, at least you would never choose the village of Nazareth. Now, why were never told? We're just simply told that Nazareth was looked down upon. The other Galileans didn't want to live in Nazareth. And we see it when Philip comes to Jesus and he goes to get his brother Nathaniel. And he says, hey, Nate, come and meet Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And the immediate response was, can anything good come from Nazareth? There was this snobbery. There was this prejudice within Galilee. It, it, it would be like saying, yeah, the prime minister came from Derosh or Lake Arok. Impossible, right? In other words, if God is going to change the world, he is going to do it with money and power and influence and wealth and education. This is just how the world works. We all know that. And what is shocking to our modern psyche is that Jesus turns it upside down. So different context, but three back-to-back -back stories. Jesus. The disciples are rebuking children. The people are bringing their kids to be blessed by Jesus. The disciples are running them away. Mark 10, and Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So if Jesus visited Northview, we would probably find him over in the children's wing wiping runny noses and investing his life in these precious little souls. 
Next, a young leader comes to him and says, hey, I want to follow you. And he's like, that's great. Sell everything you've got and then come follow me. And we're told that the young man went away sad because he was wealthy. And then Jesus says this shocking statement, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then there's one more, back to back to back in the same text. Later in that day, the disciples are arguing among themselves who's the greatest. Who's going to sit at his right and his left hand? Who's going to rule in the kingdom? And Jesus takes his disciples aside and says, you know what? You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever wants to be great. Now, this is interesting to note because Jesus doesn't dish them for saying they wanted to be great. It's fine to have the aspiration to be great in God's kingdom. He just gives the path. If you want to be great among you in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so if we ask that question, did Jesus come to change the world? The answer is most certainly yes, indeed he did. He came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, what we were helpless to do. He loved the world so much, John 3.16 tells us. He looked down, he saw the mess, he stepped down into it, he took our sin upon himself, he carries all our sorrows to the cross of Calvary so that we might be reconciled, that the way is open for us to be right with God. Yes and amen. That he came in love, but he also came with the posture of a servant. And so I'll come back to our starting question, the simple question, are we a humble people? And how might God use us if we were to intentionally embrace the way of Jesus, the path of humility, the path of service, the path of love? And you see, friends, this is our challenge when we are honest with ourselves that we read a story like this and our hearts are warmed. We might even be deeply moved with the plight that Mary and Joseph lived with in trying to raise this little boy. But in the part of the world that we live in and in the time and the place in history that we find ourselves in, we don't know what we don't know as much as me we might want to. You see, the gospel is written for the brokenhearted. The Gospels are written for the poor in spirit. The Gospels are written to the humble and the contrite. So here's the honest question, friend. How do you do humble when you've been given so much? You see, I don't need to remind you, but I will, that if you're in this room, and I think that's most of you, that we are the wealthy of the world. No matter what you think of your standard of living compared to somebody else who makes more than you, we in North America, in Western Canada, in the Fraser Valley, among the wealthy by all global standards. And so before you mention your favorite movie star or the athlete who just signed some $15 million contract or your multimillionaire friend or certainly Elon Musk, before we go there, let me throw some numbers on the screen for you. 
And did you realize this, that if in 2022, you earn $10,000, that you are wealthier than 84% of the world's population? And if you earn $20,000 this year, you are wealthier than 93% of the world's population. And if you earn over $50,000 this year, you are wealthier than 99% of the 8 billion people on the planet. Did you know that? We in this room are the 1%. I googled uh, Abbotsford's standard of living. The average income in Abbotsford in 2022 is estimated to be 72,000. We are indeed the world's wealthy. By all global standards, we are the powerful, the rich, the privileged. We are, the rest of the world looks at us like royalty. And yet our faith is centered on a homeless man who started his life in a refugee camp on run from a dictator and then was raised in some unknown village on the wrong side of the tracks. And so no wonder that the New Testament is filled with invitations for us to step down, to descend into greatness. Uh, in his book, Humilitas, John Dixon defines humility this way. He said, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, to deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others beyond yourself. It sounds an awful lot like Philippians 2, does it not? Have this mind in you, which was in Christ, who, although he was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he did what? He emptied himself. He humbled himself by taking on the likeness of humanity, and then he humbled himself further to die the death, the shameful, ignominious death on a cross. And if we read our Bibles clearly, we can't avoid the overarching thing that God delights in humility, that greatness in the kingdom of God begins by stepping down. And so the real question, uh, finally, to summarize this, the real question remains, do we believe it? Do we believe that Jesus' chosen strategy would actually work? 1 Corinthians says this, Consider what you're, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Well, that's an insult. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Seems like every year uh, there's a Christmas carol or two that come out, a new Christmas song. Some of them stick, some of them don't. And back in the late 90s, Brenton Brown released a little Christmas tune called Humble King. And for me, it became one of my favorites. The words go like this, O kneel me down again here at your feet. Show me how much you love humility. O Spirit, be the star that leads me to the humble heart of love I see in you. And then the chorus is like this, you're the God of the broken, you're the friend of the weak. You wash the feet of the weary, you embrace the ones in need. I want to be like you, Jesus. 
to have this heart in me. You're the God of the humble. You're the humble king. And then the Christmas verse goes like this. Here in this dusty ground, I bow with kings. Where wise men laid before their offerings. I lay no golden crown here at your feet. Just this, my broken life, I offer thee. Greatness in God's kingdom begins by stepping down. And do we believe that Jesus' strategy still works today? So let me ask you a couple questions and then I will pray. How might we give our lives away this Christmas? And how might we give our lives away as we head into another year, 2023? Can you stand with me? The team will come and lead us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we have to say thank you again for all of your undeserved mercy and grace in our lives, that there is nothing that we have that did not come through your hands of grace and mercy, preeminently our salvation of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, of course. But yet, Lord, every other gift, we pray, give us our daily bread. The fact that we have clothes in the closet and food in the deep freeze and a little money in the bank are all signs of your abundant blessing in our lives. And, oh God, in this part of the world that we have been so blessed to live in, would you somehow let us get inside this story that you love humility, that you love to run towards the ones who are servants, the ones who, like Jesus, do not grasp onto our power, but we willingly empty ourselves for the good of others. And God, may this gift of love at Christmas, which is a central theme of the Christmas story, may it, be, may it last more than just Christmas Day. May it be more than just one day of the year where we think of others. May it become part of our psyche year-round that we would be like this humble king, that we would lay our lives down for the glory of God and for the good of others. Lord, would you seal that into our heart by your spirit, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.